The Black Widow finds family and forgiveness when her past blasts her out of her self-imposed exile. Are you just watching? Episode 118, Black Widow. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today, as promised, we are recording on the finally arrived Marvel <laughs> release of Black Widow. Much delayed. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this one for a while. And it kind of seems out of sequence, too, if you think about it, because this movie actually takes place between, I guess it's kind of between the ending of Captain America's Civil War and yep. the teaser scene at the end of <laughs> Captain America. So yeah. it takes place during the credits of <laughs> Captain America Civil War. I knew the credits were getting long in these movies, but I didn't think they were that long. Yeah. So we're kind of going back in time to before Endgame and to before Infinity War and a couple Spider-Man movies. And yeah. Yeah. Story-wise, I think it would have made more sense where it was originally supposed to be released, which was before the phase four Disney Plus series started. Yeah. But, uh, you know, <laughs> pandemic, it affected <laughs> everybody. It's certainly understandable. So, right. It's kind of like a almost like an origin movie because it's taking you back in time a little mm -hmm. bit to where Black Widow came from and exploring parts of her life that were not necessary for the, I guess, the general overview of where they were going with Marvel. But it is necessary now because I think because Black Widow died in Endgame, they need to establish a new Black Widow, possibly. Yeah. So that might be what we're doing with this movie, maybe. I think I'll be disappointed if she's established as a new Black Widow rather than her own character. Because it lessens the value of the sacrifice that Natasha made in Endgame. Right. By just bringing in a, a new hero to replace her. The, the same way that, you know, bringing in a new Iron Man to replace Tony Stark would lessen the value of his sacrifice, even though you really do need somebody to fill that role in the team. Well, and I think that what is done with this movie, at least partially, is that we're seeing that Yelena is her own person. Yes, so she's, exactly. So she's not a new Natasha. She is Yelena. Yeah. <laughs> so if she is Black Widow in the future, she's going to be her own Black Widow. So talking about Yelena, there's one thing specifically that I want to mention, but it's a pretty big spoiler for the end credit scene. So we're going to put our spoiler warning here a little early in the episode, a little earlier than normal. If you have not seen Black Widow and want to avoid spoilers, just pause, go to the movie theater, grab your popcorn, get a nice large soda, and go <laughs> Are we watch- advertising concessions now? <laughs> go watch Black Widow. And if you happen to be over the age of 45, find a place about mid-movie to step out and go to the bathroom because, you know, you've had that large soda. <laughs> anyway, so- in the end credit scene, which takes place after the events of – well, after apparently the events of Endgame, Yelena is shown being approached by uh, the Countess, the same character played by 
Julia Louise Dreyfus and was featured in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. What that seems to be setting up based on the the YouTube videos that I watched and the articles that I've read is a second team called the Thunderbolts, which is sort of Marvel's answer to the Suicide Squad. So I'm questioning whether or not Yelena is being set up to bring in as a new Avenger or if she is being set up to be on this team of anti-heroes. And I've said before, and I'll say again, I don't particularly appreciate the anti-hero theme in movies. I think it, it doesn't provide the escape that I seek when I go to see a hero movie. So I'm not sure how they're going to be using Elena, but it's clear that they're going to be using her and in a larger context that is going to be the same way that they are going to be using John Walker, who is now U.S. agent, and probably Baron Zemo, among some other people. Yeah, and see, I haven't watched the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier yet, so I'm kind of out of the loop on that. Ah. But one of the points that I made with the people that I went to see the movie with had seen the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier, and so they were telling me what you just said. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, though, is is that her assignment that she was given in that teaser scene is to go after Clint. And it was Clint who turned Natasha. And Clint is not responsible for Natasha's death. Natasha committed suicide. So I think they might be setting up where Clint might be to Yelena what he was to Natasha. Just minor disagreement on word choice, Sarah. I would say she didn't commit suicide, but she sacrificed herself. Well, yeah. Which is different. She... But it, it's different in the fact that she he did not kill her. Right. She killed herself. And so the countess clearly made it sound what she said. And I even I even put it in my notes. Maybe you'd like a shot at the man responsible for your sister's death. Kind of cute, don't you think? It's, you know, the countess is being clearly manipulative, although we don't know how much of what happened there with the with the soul stone. Yeah. We don't know how much of that is public knowledge or anything, but clearly she's being manipulative. Well, and it's all Clint, what Clint said. So it's all hearsay. I mean, yeah. it, we, we're we relying on his testimony of what happened. So I could see how people would that could then twist that, you know, well, he said that she did. Yeah. He didn't kill her. But yeah, it was more of a race to see who could die first than uh, who killed who. But. Anyway, all of that to say, it. I think that they're definitely, whether it's going to be in a TV show or a movie, we're going to have some kind of a showdown between Yelena and Clint, and that will be probably determine where she's going to go. Well, that's actually the next Disney series, Hawkeye. Mm. And they're supposed to be, well, they have cast the role of Kate Bishop, who is in the comic series, the young Hawkeye. So yeah, they're they're setting everyone up, and Scott Lang's daughter is supposed to be coming in as a as a hero too. Mm. So yeah, the second generation. <laughs> yeah, Avengers. <laughs> the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
as we are talking about this movie, of course, we have to talk about the music because that's mm-hmm. what I do. I always talk about the music. And the soundtrack for this one was done by Lorne Balfe, who is not done another Marvel that I could see. But we did talk about his music before because he did the score for Gemini Man, which mm. we reviewed in 2019, I believe. And so I remember that being a, a, a somewhat moody score, and this one is also a moody score. So it, it actually really fit the, I guess, the time period and, and what's going on in the movie. It was, I just recall, they did a lot of songs in this movie as well. So there was not just the score, yeah. but there was a soundtrack as well. And the words to the songs seem to have been picked very carefully. So I think that along with the score, the soundtrack was actually very valuable in setting mm-hmm. the mood of the yep. movie. But I will play a little bit of the score here for you to listen to. the music for Black Widow and that should set the mood for the rest of our discussion. And you know, you mentioned to me pre-recording and you've got here in the notes, he also did the composition for Amazon Prime movie, The Tomorrow War starring Chris Pratt. Mm -hmm. Which we've both seen and enjoyed. (laughs) Yeah, which which was actually, (laughs) I commented, it was remarkably good for being what is essentially a a direct-to-video movie. (laughs) Right. Uh, although direct-to-video yeah. doesn't really carry the same stigma that it used to, so I don't know how to think of them anymore. Yeah, I think 2020 kind of changed that yeah. quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of people who still prefer to watch their movies at home, and which, I mean, is really kind of what you did, because I went to see Black Widow in the theater yep. with the, the whole theater experience with the previews and the popcorn, and, <laughs> and you watched it at home. <laughs> we, we watched it on... Disney Plus Premiere Access because it just made more sense. Yeah. Because we had three people in our household who wanted to watch it. And plus my uh, my daughter, son-in-law, and grandkids are stationed over in England, and they wanted to watch it too. So rather than spending the money for all of us to go to the theater, uh, it just made more sense to spend the, the 20 bucks to get early access to it on Disney Plus Network. And you could watch it multiple times, which I only yep. got to see it once. <laughs> yeah, it, it allowed me to go through and do our viewing notes the way that we do when we do a streaming or a DVD movie, as mm-hmm. opposed to doing the notes in a dark theater like you had to do, which gave me a, a slight advantage in the note taking. Yes. So Tim's going to do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been a short episode. Thank you very much, everybody. Don't just watch. <laughs> Well, 
my thoughts on this movie are, you know, I thought it was a very entertaining movie and I enjoyed how consistent they were with their casting from mm. the, the little girls that played Natasha and Yelena. They were very believable transitions to their adult selves. Yeah. And I thought that was cast well. I thought that they did, you know, the transition for the, the parents and the, that um, fake relationship as well. Yeah. You know, I just, I thought the movie was casted well and they seemed to have good energy between Natasha and, Yel- or, and Yelena. Uh, the, the actresses, mm-hmm. you know, seemed to have uh, found a good way to bicker like sisters. <laughs> Out of curiosity, do you think they de-aged or... Do you think they use CGI to change the age of either of the parental characters, Alexi or Melina? They may have. Because Cause Alexia definitely looked younger in the Melina, not so much. Yeah, but he looked he looked younger the same age as he is in Stranger Things, mm-hmm. which is his actual age. He's only 45. Right. So um, maybe they. And- Rachel Weiss Add- is about the about the same age, right? Yeah. But uh So maybe but, they made him all look older? Yeah, I was added some wrinkles. I feel like they made them look older for the later scenes. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, very subtly, mm-hmm. which is part of the strong production values that, you know, every well, Marvel they- movie seems to have. They mostly yeah. made him gain weight. Yeah. And they gave him a beard the size of, you know, uh, the Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the other things that I really appreciated, and, and this kind of, it's not really a spoiler. Mm. I really appreciated how they broke the fourth wall uh, in a humorous way in the banter between the sisters, because the Yelena kept going on and on about how Natasha was such a poser because she <laughs> acted like people were looking at her all the time. Yeah. And which is, you know, she's a, a character in a movie. So people are looking at her all the time. And so that was definitely mm. uh, breaking the fourth wall a bit, but it worked because it just, you know, everybody just broke out laughing in the theaters because <laughs> it just, <laughs> It fits so well because yeah, it, it, it it was a nice nod, wasn't it? Yeah, and and the fact that Black Widow always has to do those sexy poses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think back to her first appearance in Iron Man, mm-hmm. and it really was all about the pose back then. Yeah, and and then when her first appearance, even in Avengers, you know, where she was, she had that full fight scene all to herself that everybody just loved, and you know, she just. She goes for those comic book poses that, you know, are mm-hmm. are just so important to the character. And then she gets kind of reamed for it by her sister. <laughs> Righteously so. Yeah. Well, then it was that wonderful scene where Yelena actually drops into that three-point <laughs> pose and then she shudders. Like, it was, like, painful. Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> So I really appreciated the the humor where they were making they it doesn't yeah. they weren't taking themselves too seriously let's put it that way. Yeah, and you know that that's one of the things that I've really liked about Marvel movies is they they always have that near perfect blend of seriousness and humor. Mm-hmm. It and it's one of the reasons I liked Black Widow, but I thought it was only so so as far as good movies go. Because mm-hmm. you know when you're watching a Marvel movie. You come in expecting really solid production values. Mm-hmm. 
and <laughs> lots and lots and lots of action, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, Russian secret uh, agencies like the uh, the Red Room. So it, I enjoyed it. it. It was a it was a good popcorn flick type thing. But I think it really suffered writing wise. The way I was sort of thinking of it is it's sort of like an alignment error at a puzzle factory. All the pieces are there and they all have the right pictures on them, but they're, they don't quite line up when you put everything together. Mm-hmm. Throughout the whole movie, I, I felt like the characters were making leaps in logic that just were not justified. And events were happening that weren't backed up by just cause and effect. But they always served the overall plot. So I, I felt like quality writing was sacrificed at the altar of pacing and moving the plot forward where it really didn't need to be. If if they had taken time to do the writing better, I think both of them could have come out on top. But it was enough to distract me from the movie. And that's sort of what it's about, you know. If you go in to watch a, a movie you're expecting to be campy and over the top. And let's face it, this is a comic book movie. So over the top is sort of what you expect. <laughs> right. You can, it's easier to suspend your disbelief for some of this stuff, but you know, Marvel has been walking a different line with their movies, setting it up as commentary, social commentary as well. Mm-hmm. So they can't go total camp without losing their ability to, to comment on society. So yeah, that sort of bugged me. Yeah, to me, I guess I I didn't see that. I mean, I see holes in all of their movies. Their movies always have holes. So it's yeah. really hard, I think, to take something that is a comic book worthy universe and make it fit into a like a real world feel which is basically what they're doing with the marvel universe mm-hmm. without having massive plot holes and yeah. so i i just kind of look around them and not really pay attention because i enjoy character driven stories and i really felt like this rested more on character development than it yeah, did on anything else Mm-hmm. And so I appreciated the movie because it not only explored Natasha's character, who is a character I've always liked in the Avengers universe, but it, it added to her background and gave us new characters to play with. And so I appreciated the movie. And yeah. I didn't walk out feeling disappointed. I, you know, when the movie was over, I felt like I'd had a really good time. And of course, maybe it's because you've watched the movie more than once that you're mm-hmm. You're hitting that wall a little harder than I yeah, am because that might I've only, be, might be. Yeah, usually I get tired of movies after the second viewing, so you may just be in hitting that wall of fatigue on mm-hmm. the story. I am still in the you know the first blush of first loves. So <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't bother me that much. And you know, I feel like they have filled in all the stuff around the priority A stuff that has been Black Widow in the Avengers movies. And Mm -hmm. allowed us to understand more of what's behind the character. And I really did appreciate that. Yeah. So that's why the movie didn't bug me. Yeah, there's big holes in it. But that's that's to be understandable. They're trying to fill in a history that really doesn't fit. So 
I mean, like she said, I thought the Red Room was done. And then she gets, finds out that it is still going. And not mm -hmm. only still going, but instead of training assassins, they're actually brainwashing them into um, compliant soldiers. So it's completely, you know, a step above what it was when she was a part of it. So yeah, know, that creates issues that, like I saw on IMDb, you know, the whole thought of this, this giant Red Room city that is existing in the clouds and somehow all of the world's satellites and military secrets <laughs> and even Iron Man and his technological empire, nobody's found it. And it's right there to be yeah. seen in the clouds by everybody. So yeah, there are some big gaping holes in the story that if you think about them too much, they're going to ruin the movie. So let's not think about them. <laughs> you know, that was actually one of the things I liked about this was it was one of the more subtle plot points that the Red Room actually got so much worse because Natasha Romanoff left it. Hmm. Um, she left the, the Black Widow program and uh, the guy who, you know, was in charge of everything, um, Drakoff, he actually changed how he controlled the, the widows. So they couldn't leave. <laughs> so that no longer are they just being brainwashed. They are now being chemically their thoughts are being chemically controlled because of Natasha. So it added, added a level of responsibility to her that I right. appreciated. Yeah. But one of the other things I appreciated about the movie was the stunts were just out of this world. Mm -hmm. You really appreciate everything that the stunt guys go through. When we talked about Gemini man, actually I had commented that the hand to hand fights, they seemed absolutely brutal. And that same level of realistic brutality makes appearances right in black widow and i don't know why i appreciate it but i do yeah well we all i mean coming out of daredevil and stuff we all appreciate when the fight scenes are done properly so yeah. that they're believable and marvel's always done quite well with that so that's that just is you know an, an additional tip of the hat to what the way they make movies but I was curious, as a man watching this movie, did you feel it as being a very feminist? No, I did not. It wasn't um, as in your face as uh, Captain Marvel was, but looking back at it- And definitely not as much as the end, that one scene in the end of Endgame. Yeah. I went to see it with a friend of mine and her two brothers, and her brothers came out of it saying that they kind of felt like it was a very feminist movie. And- the more I look at it, I kind of think in a way it sort of is because the mm. both Natasha and Yelena and their mother, Melina, Melina, Melina. Yeah. All three of them were extraordinarily competent while they made Alexi <laughs> look very bumbling and and emotionally. Extraordinarily incompetent. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was like. They were doing the same thing they do in the modern family shows, you know, the yep. sitcoms and stuff where the father figure is always a bubbling idiot. And mm -hmm. so in a way, I can sort of see that it was, you know, female power thing going on, maybe a little less in your face than they have in the past. But it definitely had the same kind of um, yeah. equation there that they that is become kind of the modern expectation. And so I... I can see that a little bit. <laughs> I think the reason that I didn't really see it as feminist is at least in part because Natasha Romanoff as a black widow has set herself apart as 
her own fully fleshed out character mm-hmm. and the the feminism aspects that I objected to specifically the one in Endgame that's the one that will always make me cringe right is where it makes it all very generic and you know a broad spectrum mm-hmm. where this wasn't this was a very a, a much tighter reined thing well and the fact that the bad guy is a man who is imposing his will on women in a way maybe kind of balances out that feminist feel yeah because it it kind of takes that whole idea of these are girls that have been trained from young children mm-hmm. to be assassins and fighters and but they do it at the will of a of a man who sees them as his children, really, because he, yeah, he refers it, to Natasha as his child. His level of uh, misogyny, it was so evil, it was uncomfortable for me. Right. In particular, because I know that there are men out there who, you know, are on the same wavelength yeah. as this guy. Yeah. And he saw girls as tools, but... There are a lot of people who just see anybody beneath them as tools. So it's an it's a yeah. level of attitude of, you know, just using people in a in a very megalomaniac kind of way. And uh, so yeah, I, maybe that balanced it out a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. And so I mean, if they had made it her going up against a female villain, then it would have definitely been a, a fully feminist movie. But I think they balanced that out pretty well. And then, of course, the la- one of the last things I wanted to mention was that I did miss the context of the final after credit scene. We've already discussed that right. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so if you have not been a member of the Disney Plus and you are missing out on Loki and Falcon and the Winter Soldier and even WandaVision, mm-hmm. you may be missing crucial information moving into the coming movies. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they have fully embraced Disney Plus as a delivery, one of the delivery platforms for the the phase four movies. In the first three phases, it was all in movie theaters. Right. But that's not going to be the case now. Yeah. And it's working for them. I mean, they're bringing people to the channel specifically for the Marvel stuff. So from a business sense, I can't really blame them. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we better move into our theme discussion. Yeah. So the first thing that I want to talk about, and I think it's probably one of the biggest themes in the movie, is the concept of family. That is the the first thing that you see when you watch the movie is a young Natasha riding her bike home in a very stereotypical small town America. Yeah, it is made to make you feel like... Small town. Right. You know, it's like the Norman Rockwell setup. (laughs) Right. You know, and they were putting dinner on the table and there's kids all out playing and, you know, daddy's got to come home from work. And and so, yeah, it's just a a setup of, you know, just the normal American family. Yeah. And if you feel that all the way when he says you've got an hour to leave and then there's this hair raising scenes where they're running to the airport and getting the plane out. And that's when you start seeing Alexi kind of doing superhuman stuff with, you know, riding the plane on the wing all the way up into the air. And and he, uh, he throws that dumpster out of the way like it's made of 
balsa wood. Right. And so you start seeing him do superhuman things. So that's kind of your first cue that something is different here. And you get that family vibe all the way up until they land in Cuba. And then everything falls apart. And that's when you find out that they're not a real family. That <laughs> it, it's... It's all a mock for a, you know, an undercover operation for the Soviet Union. And so, and then you find out that the girls are not even sisters. They're not even daughters of Milena and Alexei. And so it, it just all shatters. And you do get the feeling even there that poor Natasha does already have the Red Room as her past because she's yep. pleading with them not to put Yelena into it. She's too young. And then what follows is is a kind of a montage of what the two girls go through in the red room following yeah. this. When a, when Alexi finally reveals, you know, himself to be a complete and utter fraud. Yeah. <laughs> as the girls' fathers, my wife turned to me and said, "Hey, there's your father of the year award right there." Yeah. Yeah, cuz he doesn't seem to really care that the the two girls are being carried off into slavery really is some of the most horrific type of slavery and so yeah it, it's it's a traumatic beginning because it really rips apart your concept of family and that's what it was for natasha because her her family was ripped apart she had a picture of what real family was like and then it got mm -hmm. shattered and 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 it was even worse for yelena because she was what five and so she to her and she even says this later in the movie that was her family yeah you know it was, it was real. real to her and having it shattered so abruptly was a really harsh part of her life and you know natasha had some some way to she was old enough to kind of put that in a context but yelena wasn't and but then you see also in this movie that when Natasha left the whole concept of, you know, the red room and, and switched over to, you know, the Western indoctrination, mm -hmm. she considered the Avengers a new family. So this yeah. was, this was the family that she had pulled together. And I think that that also kind of explains a lot, her willingness to sacrifice herself to put that family back together in Endgame. So yeah. I think that this was a very important movie to kind of, I mean, she's always been a well-fleshed out character and you really felt at the beginning of Endgame how empty she felt with the Avengers having, you know, most of the Avengers having vanished in the, the snap. Yeah. And, you know, her, her sense of the Avengers being her family is something that helped her get through the years between uh, the end of Infinity War and the beginning of Endgame mm -hmm. 2. Right. So in thinking about the fact that there's no real family in this movie, but yet it's all about family, I think that that is a good way of kind of tying in, you know, what, what we are as Christians, because there's nothing more unifying than being able to call people who are different than you a sister or a brother mm -hmm. in Christ, because that is where we find the ultimate leveling of, I guess, all the ways that we judge people. And so one of the things I kept thinking of is, you know, biological families have problems. People, I, I would imagine people who don't have <laughs> a biological that. family who are adopted or even uh, in the foster system, who have never had families. They probably look at 
you know, the the family union in a very misty-eyed way. Like, I just Mm -hmm. wish I had a real mom or whatever. But real families, real biological families come with a lot of problems. And they're the families you don't get to choose. You're born into them. But then adoptive families also have problems because even though at least some in some way, at least one or two people in that family have been chosen to be a part of that family. Yeah. There is still, as I just mentioned, the looking back on, I mean, maybe my real family would have been better. That creates problems too. Well, then in spiritual families, as in our Christian family, have problems because we don't always put our father first when we're dealing with our siblings in Christ. And so we have the same sibling rivalries that exist in biological and adoptive families happen in the spiritual family as well. Absolutely. And we're dealing with that in my church right now. I think every church probably has those those issues where there's the same rivalries that you would have with a sibling where you have with a brother and sister in Christ in the church environment. So in the end... My conclusion is that there are no perfect families this side of eternity. <laughs> well, we're we're all we all suffer from the the fallen nature of humanity, right? So I look forward to a time when we won't, right? And and that is what she's really dealing with in this movie is this whole concept of family. And you know, Alexi was real excited to have his whole family faux family back together, and they they were all three kept reiterating the fact that they weren't really a family. And yet Yelena was yearning for that family to be put back together because to her, it was real. And so the the best step of forgiveness was when at the very end of the movie, Natasha admits to Yelena that it was real to her too, that yeah. she, that that sisterhood that they'd had, that camaraderie was real and that she, and she apologized for having left Yelena behind when she, left Russia behind. And, you know, in in the opening with Natasha and Elena as the kids, Mm -hmm. you don't doubt that the two kids saw each other as sisters. Right. So throughout the movie, all the way up until the end, when Natasha is denying that it was real, she's doing it out of hurt. Right. So it really makes that, that final admission to Elena that much more touching in my mind. Yeah. And that just goes to show that biological sisters and brothers have nothing greater than what you can have with sisters of the heart or brothers of the heart, which can be spiritual relationships, or they can be personal relationships, you know, best friends that could be a sister or a brother that, you know, fill that void in your life. And so... Mm -hmm. And just to top that off with a little bit of scripture, I do want to mention Romans 9, 8, that is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. That is in context of, in the verses they're talking about, the descent of of the people of Israel and the fact Mm -hmm. that in Christ, we are grafted into that era of, of promise, basically. Yeah. And then in Romans eight fourteen through 17, it says, For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So that is our purpose in the family mm. of God. Yeah. 
And we've already discussed it a little bit, but I did want to just touch briefly on, you know, this concept of having girls being used that Drakov was really seeing these girls as a commodity, a resource. And there was a line in there that really struck me. Uh, he was talking to Natasha at the time, justifying, well, she managed to do what she does best and get people to talk, <laughs> manipulate people. <laughs> does she into, ever? Yeah, to talking. That That is actually her superpower. <laughs> so he, he's <laughs> monologuing about, you know, why he chose to. She gets him to monologue. So, right. <laughs> so, so well. Yeah. The same way she did with uh, Loki in, in Avengers. Right. Yeah, that's her. That's like I said, that's her superpowers to yeah. get people to talk. The whole point, like when she's first seen in Avengers is she's she's in the middle of an interrogation. Tied to a chair. Tied to a chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what he says to her. He says, these girls were trash. They were thrown out into the street. I recycle the trash. I give them purpose. I give them a life. My widows can start and end wars. They can make and break kings. And with you, an avenger under my control, I can finally come out of the shadows using the only natural resource that the world has too much of, girls. And I think that this kind of reiterates a concept that kind of has been an ongoing idea that may not necessarily be true, is that there we have too many girls and uh. that... There's not a good use for them. And I was one, I actually thought that there were more women than men in the world. And I just looked up the stats before we started recording. And that's actually not the case. There is men slightly edge out women in a world population. And possibly that is due to selective abortions, because most people desire boys over girls, which in a way kind of adds to this thought that girls are trash. Well, even even in American culture, among parents, we have this trope you might call it, that girls are far more expensive to raise and, and far more difficult to raise than boys. Mm-hmm. Which I think that I would prefer girls, to be honest, because boys are always getting into trouble, <laughs> breaking <laughs> bones, and they're a little more adventurous when they reach a certain age, and girls kind of are a little quieter. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, but that is also a gender stereotype, so... It's not necessarily true of all girls or all boys, for that matter. And I think it's the gender stereotypes that kind of get us into trouble with yeah, exactly. you know the world in which, you know, where we have boys who think that they need to be girls in order to be quiet and, and play at, you know, less manly things, or girls who feel like they need to be men if they are adventurous. And, and these are children who don't know yet what it is right. to be one or the other. Right. Yeah. It's just so – it's so frustrating to me, and I know that this is the work of the great deceiver. Right. I just <laughs> – and, and, you know, speaking from a personal – from personal experience, it's difficult to speak out against to people you love now because society has taken on this – Error that it's hate to right. speak out against to speak out against transgenderism is hate. Right. Books are being banned from Amazon that oppose transgenderism because they're labeling them hate speech. Right, and it's just so so frustrating to me to have people that I admire, people that I love, who support these misguided goals of children 
Right. I think it's abuse, to be perfectly honest. If you take, I mean, children have the most interesting ideas of who they are, especially before puberty. And and to twist that into, I mean, if I had lived in a, in this era, if I'd grown up in this era, I might have been labeled as a transgender boy mm-hmm. because I was, I wanted to play with trucks and horses. I didn't yeah. want a dolls. And they take those preferences and twist them into saying that they don't want to be that sex where the gender has nothing to do with those preferences. And you can be a girl and still like to play with trucks and get yeah, money. Absolutely. And there's no reason why those preferences should dictate whether or not you're a girl or vice versa. Wanting to play with dolls dictates whether a boy wants to be a, should be a boy or not. So they're turning the gender stereotype into definitions of what genders are. And that is not the way you should do it. And it's destroying little kids because they're not old enough to really understand the decisions that the world is forcing them to make before they even hit puberty. And that just breaks my heart. But in, in the context of this movie, it's transgender is really not an issue in this movie, but yeah. Sorry for the rabbit hole. Grab it. Yeah. But the fact is that these girls that they definitely give a nod to the issue that we do have with girls being trafficked. And we do know it happens. And it has become, I guess, a little bit more obvious and a little more talked about than it has been in the past. Uh, it's the new slave trade. You know, they're yeah. stealing, they're stealing young girls, you know, walking home from school or even older girls, you know, in high school and college are being stolen and being shipped away to be used in the sex trade. And they're locked into it and they have no way out once they get in. And so it is, it is something in our culture. Probably the vast majority of them are not being trained to be assassins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> I hope not. But they are being trafficked into, I would say, even worse. Into the sex trade, yeah. In the sex trade, yeah. So it is definitely something we need to keep uh, awareness of. And and on the on the topic of the gender roles and how that applies to Christianity, because it really disturbs me that the world's idea of Christianity is that we keep women barefoot and pregnant. And there are parts of Christianity that do do that, but the women yeah. typically go into it voluntarily. So it's not like they're being forced to, to marry and have children. That's what they want to do. But in the concept of our spiritual inheritance, that we are all equal. And we go back to that verse we have used a lot in this podcast, mm. Galatians three twenty seven through 29. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds, heirs according to the promise. I actually saw a couple commentaries before watching Black Widow, saying that this movie was about human trafficking. And it definitely does have a human trafficking element in it, but I don't think that it does a good enough job. Dealing with the topic. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. I, I think part of what was missing was at the end of Black Widow, when Natasha was taking control over the entire empire, she just blows up the Red Room and leaves. I feel like they missed an opportunity to, I don't know, show her gathering a list of the the kidnappers and sending them to authorities or something like that. 
It's, although she did download, you know, she downloaded everything, and it implies that, that she traded that information to Ross to become a. It's, it wouldn't be a double agent. It wouldn't be a triple agent. A quadruple agent. <laughs> well, I thought she gave it to Yelena so that Yelena could go and free all of the. Oh, did she? Widows. She might. Yeah. Have, I might not be remembering that. But I, I feel like they missed that opportunity to address the human trafficking as part of the taking down of the Red Room. So I, I would have liked to have seen a, a little bit more focus on the human trafficking just because, you know, a Marvel movie is – it really is a bully pulpit unlike no other. Yeah. So – Black Widow is not a movie about human trafficking. Black Widow is a comic book movie that features human trafficking but could have done better. Yeah. Well, and it was a different kind of human trafficking than than what we're experiencing in today's culture. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hyperbolic version of what we see today. Right. And you know, it's it that actually leads into the the topic first topic I wanted to discuss, which was very early in the movie, after the flashback sequence, when we're first introduced to uh, the current age Yelena, who looks like she's probably in her early twenties. She is freed from her mind control by exposure to. The uh, MacGuffin of the Black Widow movie, which is the antidote antidote to the – yeah, to the chemical mind control. And the Black Widow that she had literally just delivered a fatal blow to just looks up to her with her final words and says, free the others. So Mm -hmm. for Yelena, it really is the the core imperative for her character – Though she didn't seem to really grasp onto it the way that I would have liked because, you know, she sends the antidote off to Natasha without any (laughs) follow-up. Yeah. It's like when when you're at work and you're like, oh, this really needs to be done. I'll, I'll shoot an email off to the help desk and they can take care of it. But you never follow up on it. So you don't really take ownership of it. And I I don't feel like Yelena ever really took ownership of the imperative to free the others. I think she did, though. You think so? Yeah, because that was that whole point where they split up after the Red Room crashed to the ground, that Natasha gave her the database and said, go free the others. So it, it was doubled up to say, yeah. you know, that that was the reason why she told them not to stay and help her fight the cavalry that was coming, you know, for her mm-hmm. was that she wanted them to take the formula, that that one last little piece for Yelena to duplicate so they could free the rest of them. And so as the movie progresses, you're right. She does, uh, you know, take a better grasp of the, the mission there. Well, I think initially when she was first given the, she didn't know how to do it by herself. And so she thought if she sent the antidote to the Avengers, that then they could take care of it all without her being involved. But I think part of that was simply because she didn't know how she could possibly do it herself. Yeah, and so, I don't buy it. <laughs> so when Natasha comes back and brings it back to her, then they were forced to face it, just the two of them. And and Natasha, of course, was like, well, yeah, let's take care of this. So mm-hmm. maybe she did 
think that she was, you know, pulling out of her responsibility and not doing it. But I think part of it may have just been, you know, fear that, you know, if she held on to the antidote and was overwhelmed, that the whole thing would have collapsed with her, that it would have ended with her because she yeah. was one person and she couldn't face the whole Red Room regime by herself. Yeah. So I think it, in a way, what she did sort of made sense, but she didn't explain herself well enough because, mm. you know, sending it off to her sister, whether her sister wasn't expecting it, number one, and didn't, was going to just throw it away without even yeah. opening it, didn't quite make sense. Anyway, it, it, I figured we would be remiss <laughs> yeah, if we did not mention the clear parallel between the instant effect of exposure to the antidote for the widows mm-hmm. and the impact of accepting Christ oh, and, yeah. you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when a widow is exposed, every one of them, it showed their eyes literally being opened, being cleared. Mm-hmm. And they immediately go through this transformation of understanding. Intellect waking up, yeah. uh, That they were slaves before, uh, even though they would not have said that they were slaves. They they couldn't see their – the control was such that they could not see their own slavery. Right. But after the exposure, they suddenly become painfully aware of how badly they were being controlled. And they gained this ability to be discerning, including discerning their past actions. And that is so like the first indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you become a a Christian, in my mind. Though, you know, seeing it on the big screen, like everything else, it's bigger than life. Right. But it reminded me of Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. And that's what these widows are doing is they're throwing off the yoke of slavery under Drakov and becoming their own person. As a matter of fact, uh, at the the end when the whole group is exposed to the, the antidote, they ask Natasha, what do we do now? Right. And Natasha says, get as far away from here as possible and do your own thing. But the way they ask, what do we do now, is very similar to the way that a new Christian is. They're babies and they need to receive direction. And, you know, I also I had this thought that when Adam and Eve ate the apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I sort of imagine that they they felt like they were going to come away with the ability to to see right and wrong. But actually what they got was the ability to do right and wrong Mm -hmm. and to be wrong. Right. So when Adam and Eve ate the apple, I I think they expected to have their eyes open when really what they, what happened was their eyes and the eyes of all their descendants ended up closed and it put me in the mind of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. 
And that's, I think I probably should have done a little bit more reading in that chapter. But uh, if I remember correctly, Isaiah is being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. But he's pointing out how blinded and willfully ignorant that people seek to remain by turning away from Christ. Well, it, and it's easy to to stay in the bondage that you're that you have because you don't know any better. Yeah, but you still hold the responsibility for not reaching out for release or preferring bondage to mm-hmm. the work that release makes. You know, yeah. where you're suddenly responsible for what you do. Yeah, it's before salvation, we are blind, but we're not stupid. We're still responsible. Yeah, yeah. It, it, we're not. <laughs> we're not so ignorant as to be irresponsible for our choices. So, the second topic that I wanted to discuss was, and we briefly d- talked about this earlier, is how I felt like this movie filled in all the air gaps in the character that is Natasha Romanoff. And there's a particular line that sort of called it out for me. And and it's right after Yelena is making fun of Natasha for doing those poses. And Natasha responds, all that time I spent posing, I was actually trying to do something good to make up for all the pain and suffering that we caused, trying to be more than just a trained killer. And Yelena responds, well, then you were fooling yourself because pain and suffering is every day and we are both still a trained killer. Except I'm not the one on the cover of the magazine. I'm not the killer that little girls call their hero. And I thought that this provided a wonderful dichotomy between the two characters that I think is going to inform the viewer on Yelena's character moving forward as she's used in other Marvel projects. Mm-hmm. So filling in those holes for Natasha, she she's seeking to perform restitution for her acts as a state-sponsored killer. And she clearly is remorseful. She regrets everything that she did. And through her work with the Avengers, she's seeking to rehabilitate herself. There's this idea that, you know, there are stages that you have to go through. And one of the last stages is you have to seek forgiveness or request forgiveness from those people you've wronged. And I thought, with Natasha's character, because you we know generally what happens now from the end of Civil War to the end of Endgame for Natasha's character when she's when she dies. Right. So she never identifies anybody that she can ask forgiveness of. But I think that's the key to her character is that at Endgame, when she's sacrificing herself, I, I feel like she realizes that the person that needs to forgive her the most is herself, which is a very Hollywoodish type of answer, but it sort of fits her character. Does that make sense? Well, I think, yeah, but in a way... You know, it's that whole concept of when you get saved, a lot of people still hold on to their guilt. Oh, yeah. But I struggle with that, too. Yeah. It's like we are saved. It's like once Christ paid for our sin on the cross and we can't keep crucifying him 
over sin that we feel guilty about. Yeah. And so even as Christians, we have to forgive ourselves because God has already forgiven us. And we can't keep pulling those sins out and exploring them and and feeling remorse over them over and over and over again because they're already paid for. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are already paid for. They're, the restitution has already been made. Yeah. That, that And like Paul says, does that mean we sin more so that grace may abound? That's certainly not. That's not the point. The point is, is that we shouldn't have to feel guilty about it. It's like we don't want to sin, but when we do sin, we shouldn't bear that burden of that guilt. It's like the story of Pilgrim's Progress where you see Christian, you know, carrying his burden all the way to the cross and then being released from it at the foot of the cross so that he's free afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that is the freedom that we should experience as Christians, but we hold on to the guilt. And it's interesting because there's this song that some Christians really like, does he still feel the nails? And it's all about, you know, whenever I sin, does Christ feel the, you know, the nails yeah. in his hands again? And the answer to that question, it's really bad theology in that song <laughs> is no, he doesn't because he's already been crucified. It was already done. The restitution's already been paid. And so, no, he doesn't feel the nails when we sin because yeah. that was already he felt the nails when he was crucified, and then he rose from the dead to provide us freedom. When he was suffering on the cross, he suffered for every sin that had to be addressed. Right. Every sin of every person who would eventually come to him, was he suffered for it at that time. Right. We're not still crucifying him every time we slip. Right. But – I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility either. Like like you said, we should still be remorseful. Um, in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, Paul instructs the church at Corinth, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves up, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. And that's important to know is our sins still serve a purpose, even though they're all paid for. Mm -hmm. They help to remind us how much, <laughs> how much we need God. And we still need to seek to change. We need to be rehabilitated and we can't do it alone. We depend on God to change us just like he promised to do for Israel in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 26, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So it's through God that we achieve our rehabilitation. And because I mentioned it earlier, I did want to point out that the idea of restitution is a biblical one. Mm -hmm. Just because we are forgiven our sins, more often than not, our sins— harm the people we love and the people around us. 
And when that happens, we need to be cognizant of that. And we need to be willing to make restitution. It, in the, the very earliest presentation of the law in Exodus 22, 22.1 starts by saying, when a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it uh, or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So not only not only is it a one for one because we're not talking eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're talking restitution is going that extra mile, and it's doing more because that approaches the love of God. Yeah, I do want to point out though that the restitution is not to God. This is to the people that right. our sin is wronged. Exactly. This is our brother and sister family relationship that we were talking earlier that is important to maintain because as people caught in the timeline, we don't see eternity. And so in order to mend the relationships that sin mars, we have to be able to admit our guilt, how we have wronged people and make restitution for it. God does not require that restitution. He just wants our confession and and our admittance that we are sinners and the rest is done already. We, that we don't have to work our way to heaven, whether there's no, you know, scales that we have to write in order to get in heaven because Christ has already taken care of that. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I did want to address Yelena's retort to Natasha about being uh, fooling herself. It made me think that uh, maybe it was a reflection of her maturity level because it's almost like Yelena doesn't think that personal change, uh, you know, this remorse and, and rehabilitation has any purpose. And mm. I do wonder if there's a, you know, a, a spiritual contemporary to this. It, it, I wonder, are there sinners out there who intellectually know, you know, that they're sinners and they know that God is a real living creator who demands their obedience, they just don't care? I would say yes. and But the question would be, are they really saved? Because they, uh, they can't be. They can't be. Yeah. Because if you haven't let go of your sin, if you're still living in bondage to it, are you either quenching the Holy Spirit or are you not indwelled by him at all? And going back to the LGBT thing, you know, there's so many homosexuals and transgenders out there who claim to be Christians who are continuing in the sexual sin that the world has told them is okay. And so they equate that with, you know, well, I'm a Christian, but I can still do this because it's not really a sin. So they rewrite the Bible to to accommodate the sin that they want to continue to live in. And I'm not going to say they're not saved because their spiritual condition is between them and God, but they definitely do not have the fruit of the spirit in their lives because the fruit of their spirit would be at least leading them to a level of repentance in the, the amount of sin that is still exists in their life. Yeah. Like you said, you want to feel guilty about it and you should at least feel guilt. some, <laughs> yeah, a holy guilt. Yeah. It's like some, some level of, I know I'm in the wrong. And hearing some of these people talk, they don't believe they're in the wrong. And I believe that there is no way they can truly be saved and not at least know on some level that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And maybe they're fooling themselves in in their public testimony on that point. But deep in their heart, if they're truly saved, they've got to know 
that God considers that to be a sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was one last topic that I wanted to discuss, and it's one that's near and dear to my heart for a couple of reasons. The first is, as we've talked about before, I'm a, a vet. I was in the Army for eight years during the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. but I was military intelligence. And, you know, like all government things, I was trained for threats from 20 years prior. (laughs) (laughs) So I was trained to fight the Soviet menace. Now, keep in mind, this is 1990, a year after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I want to say USSR, I don't remember when the USSR officially broke up, but it was clear (laughs) at the point that I was going through my training that the Soviet menace was not what it was in the 80s, which was when all the the training that I went through was actually written. But we were taught about how all of Soviet Russia, all of the Soviet citizens were indoctrinated like we see Alexei being indoctrinated. And there's an exchange in Black Widow that really brought that to the forefront for me. And Alexei says, did, did I do something wrong? And I don't remember which of the girls uh, responds. Is, is that a serious question? He says, I only ever loved you girls. I did my best to make sure you would succeed to achieve your fullest potential. And everything worked out. Uh, Natasha says, everything worked out? And he says, yes, for you, yes. Uh, we accomplished our mission in Ohio. Yelena, you went on to become the greatest child assassin the world has ever known. No one can match your efficiency, your ruthlessness. And Natasha, not just a spy, not just toppling regimes, destroying empires from within, but a, an avenger. You both have killed so many people. Your ledgers must be dripping, just gushing red. I could not be more proud of you. And <laughs> from our American perspective, and, and I'm sure this is the reason it's written this way, we're looking at this going, what in the world is wrong with this guy? But, you know, that's the way that back in the early 90s, we were taught to see Soviet citizens all mm-hmm. with this level of myopathy and – the citizens of the unit of the USSR, they were raised in a world with a controlled media where the only information that they got, the only truth that they got was the truth that the state provided. The state newspaper was called Pravda, which means truth. So they come out of this myopic existence with an absolute certainty in their own righteousness. And, you know, this is a reason when you see coups in like Miramar and the first non-military target that the coup takes over is the press, is media. Mm -hmm. And the second reason that this particular topic is so near and dear to my heart is my family has been torn apart by politics (laughs) but exactly i have my my youngest sister and her husband are both uh ordained my uh brother-in-law is uh ordained rca and my sister is ordained lutheran and i think she's ordained rca still but they have embraced progressive christianity and deny the authority of scripture 
Mm-hmm. And when we discuss it, and, and we have discussed it peaceably, you know, they laid out their stuff that they want me to, to read, to experience, to, to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it all just supports the same view. And that's exactly what they accuse me of doing by sticking with Keller and Piper and uh, Sproul. <laughs> it all just supports my view. Well, yeah, but my view is right. So maybe that's what's happening. Yeah. My brother on one side of me is just set aside Christianity altogether. He's gone hedonist and refuses to look at any Christian source material. And on the other side, my mother and my oldest brother have gone so far right as to scare me. My nephew has joined a militia, hmm. and my brother and sister-in-law, they're embracing the more radical ideas of Seventh-day Adventist. They are only consuming information that supports their views. Mm-hmm. And the point of this podcast and the reason that I first reached out to Eve to ask to be her co-host was because the point of the podcast is to encourage thinking critically and scripturally about what we are offered through secular media. And you cannot think critically unless you are willing to consider all the views out there and compare them to yours. If you only consume that which supports your preconceived notions, you can never think critically because you just don't have a frame of reference to do it. And that's what's happening in the United States right now is this glut of information, the ubiquity of internet access and the ability to generate realistic looking content that clearly supports your own bias has allowed people to feel like they are still getting a full diet of information when they are really just eating the candy that they like. Right. And you can't do justice to the mind that God gave us by doing that. Just like if you only eat candy, you're going to destroy your body if you only consume the information that supports your idea, your preconceived ideas, you're going to destroy your mind. And that's what's happening in the United States. And, you know, and I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I think part of that problem, not just in, in feeding your own bias, is that there are no neutral sources anymore. And in a struggle to find a place to get neutral information, there is no neutrality. It's just like there is no neutrality in the spiritual battle. You're either for Christ or you're against him. Mm-hmm. And that is a an issue uh, that has reared its ugly head in our social and societal positions as well, in that it doesn't matter which side you listen to, they're biased in a one way. And being able to recognize bias is going and having discernment is probably the greatest gift you can have. But I know mm. in personally that when you, once you have that discernment, it's really hard 
to listen to something that is oh, yeah. anti your view because all you do is see how they're wrong. Oh, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> and you don't want to listen to them anymore because all you hear is how they're wrong. And it's hard to take anything they say as credible when they're wrong on so many things and biased. So it, it is so hard to find credible sources for information that are not biased because they, everybody has a bias now. Yeah. There's no, journalism cease, has ceased to exist. There is no such thing as journalism. People just exposing the truth. They're all exposing the truth they want to be heard. Yeah. And I honestly don't know that there is a cure for that other than just being willing to do some research on your own. Yeah. And even the research is hard because, you know, there's only so many places you can go on the internet that aren't even filtered by a bias. So. Critic critical thinking is not supposed to be easy. No, it isn't. That's true. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, work it. <laughs> work yeah. it. Exercise your mind as well as your body. I have to just put in a plug here. I just but the night before we record recorded this, I actually recorded an interview that will be out in August. So it's for the podcast called Publishing Secrets with Coach Tam. And she interviewed me about my book, Are You Just Watching? And we actually discussed some of this about because she was really intrigued by the idea that our podcast doesn't just deal with entertainment, that we talk about things as humdrum as commercials <laughs> and documentaries and news. So predominantly, we deal with movies and yep. occasional TV entertainment, but we have done, I think, two whole episodes now on commercials. And it is amazing what you feed your mind with. And you have to have that critical thinking hat on even when you are watching news. Mm -hmm. Especially. And when. that is true whether you're watching CNN or Newsmax. It doesn't matter. You have to have your critical thinking hat on at all times because you can pick out the logical fallacies, the places where people are leaving out information because they don't want you to know things. And be willing to do your own research and follow, you know, the, the topic to its conclusion. You know, if you want to know what's going on with, let's say, child pornography or human trafficking, don't just rely on, you know, the CNN headlines or the clickbait. That's the clickbait's oh. the worst. Because a lot of times the headlines say things that are not even said in the article. So if you're going just by the headlines and you're not clicking on the articles and reading them, a lot of times you're missing out on information that's completely contrary to what you think the headline yeah. said. Yeah, exactly. So don't don't just go by clickbait. Don't go by, you know, headlines. Go research the topics and find out more about them. Yeah. It, we are as responsible citizens of heaven and responsible citizens of the US as citizens of secular societies. It we have to be truly informed and not just being lazy about how we get our information. It, we're, we're called by scripture to be discerning in, in so many different places. It, Proverbs 14, uh, 15 through 17 says, The inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. A wise person is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily, easily angered and is careless. A quick-tempered person acts foolishly. And the one who schemes is hated. And hmm. I mean, the entire book of Proverbs is, well, <laughs> Proverbs. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. But th there, it's instructions. Most of it is framed as uh, a father giving advice to a son. Right. And these are words to live by, literally. 
And, you know, it's not only in the Old Testament, too. First Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21 says, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. So we're supposed to discern. We're supposed to listen, but then be discerning and discard the the stuff that that fails the test. Yeah. So in the end, don't be the useful idiots that just follow the propaganda of the age, whatever that propaganda is, yeah. whether it be socialism or the other side of things, the extremism that can lead us as Christians into a war that we were not as Christians ordered to fight. So we have to remember what our purpose is on this earth is not to fight socialism, though I wholeheartedly believe socialism is wrong and we yeah. should fight it. But at the same time, that is not ultimately our calling. And if the United States should fall into socialism, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should become militant against it. It means that we should trust God. We don't stop our witness because things don't go our way. Right. In fact, that's when our witness is more important. Our example to those around us and how we react to circumstances, especially bad circumstances, speaks a lot to our faith. And who we have our faith in. So on that, that, we will conclude this discussion on the Black Widow. I'm sure there's many more topics that we could talk about. And I do encourage you to join us in our Facebook group, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community or searching for Are You Just Watching on Facebook. You can find our community, ask to join. There's just three questions you have to answer and you get right in and we can prolong this conversation there as long as we want. So make sure you join us. Uh, you can also comment on the show notes, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 118. And you can call us at 513-818-2959. I actually just got a voicemail reaction to the episode that I did on knowing, which was many wow. years ago. <laughs> yeah. That's the Nick and, Cage uh, movie. Yeah. So that was really cool to get some, you know, people are listening to our backlog of episodes. I really appreciate that. If you come and listen to one, go ahead and listen to all the rest of them. We have quite a few now, 118 to be exact. Uh, (laughs) So definitely leave us voicemails. I always love feedback. So we just love to hear from you. And you can also email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. If you feel led to support this podcast, we would love for you to do so. We want to thank our current supporters, Isaiah Santiano, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous support. And you can support us by going to our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash are you just watching? Or you can go to paypal.com slash paypalme slash AYJW to support us through PayPal. So those are your two support options. We really would appreciate it if you would consider giving us a small monthly gift or even a a small or large uh, single gift. And either would be much appreciated. We do want you to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We do only do one episode a month, and that is about as much as Tim and I can manage. So I don't know how these <laughs> daily podcasters do it uh, with, with our lives. It's just, uh, it's all we can do to get one episode out a month. But they are long episodes, so you can at least enjoy the discussion for an extended period of time. We thank you so much for joining us. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch.
The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.